It's the 4th of March, 2022. This is a Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week on the podcast, we're talking fingernails, JDM, money, and bad things happen when you stop or reduce drugs. This podcast is sponsored by Room Now Live. It's coming up on March 19th and 20th. Go to RoomNow.live to register it's all about science, technology, clinical trials. You know, you're curious. We've got generous educators. I think you'll be surprised and really pleased with our program. Let's begin with a talk about herpes zoster. What do you do? Someone gets the shingles. It's like the web, the Facebook, the Google. They get the shingles. Put the in front of anything. It sounds odd. Um, they get the shingles and what do you do with their therapies? Almost everybody stops, but do you resume? Um, so someone gets shingles, they're on a drug. They could be on a jack inhibitor. They could be on a TNF inhibitor. You stop, you treat the shingles. Do you resume or not? An interesting study from Japan looked at 416 patients who were previously doing well on a jack inhibitor and they then got the shingles. Uh, the average age of these patients was 60 years of age. Almost half of them were on steroids. They had been on a uh, uh, jack inhibitor for over a year. Um, 72% of their patients continued the jack inhibitor during the zoster episode. 15% temporarily discontinued and then later resumed. So that means 87% were back on the drug. When you looked at their numbers, they had about 10% of patients who had you know, severe, you know, shingles, multidermatomal, um, face and eye involvement and all the things you don't want to see. Um, but, you know, the numbers actually who never went back to a jack were very few. I think it's prudent to hold a jack inhibitor. I wouldn't hold it more than two weeks because, you know, if you hold a jack inhibitor more than two weeks, patients are going to flare. Um, and treat them and then you can resume unless, you know, they're wigged out and freaked out and don't ever want to get that again. They did have one case of their 416, um, um, I'm sorry, 416 RA patients, 8% of them had a episode of zoster. It's a fairly high number. Of the 8% of the 416, that would be like, you know, what, about 39 or something like that. Um, one of them had a reinfection with zoster later on, and that patient was on a JAK inhibitor, which does increase your odds of getting so the point being treat it continue it resume it but later on if you can get the shingrix vaccine you know the recombinant zoster vaccine get it to prevent this from happening again because people who've had zoster before can get it again we know that nails are involved in patients with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis there is the belief that nail disease predisposes to dip pip disease in psoriatic arthritis. This particular study of almost 2,000 patients with psoriasis, 11.5% developed psoriatic arthritis. When they looked at what was predictive for developing psoriatic arthritis, it was not nail pitting. It was instead onycholysis and hyperkeratosis. Interesting. That actually has been stated before. Interesting teaching point. Uh, another good teaching point comes from John Ravel, who did an interesting review. I think it was in Nature Rheumatology on biomarkers and axial spondyloarthritis, looking at a lot of different markers that are out there, what's been written, adipokines, cytokines, um, metalloproteinases, calprotectin, 
Um, CD74, bone markers of turn, turn, burnt, uh, markers of bone turnover, markers of cartilage degradation. And you know what was most predictive and performed like a biomarker? That's right, C-reactive protein, 10 bucks. Again, the elusive biomarker search continues. Um, InBuild republished some of its data, um, looking at, again, their uh, sort of a sub-analyses here. As you know, InBuild was a study of patients with autoimmune-related interstitial lung disease, ILD, who were treated with nentednib. Um, and it did show in this 170 patients significant um, slowing of the rate of FVC, fourth vital capacity decline, um, over a one-year period. Uh, the 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 rates of decline were minus 76 mLs per year with nintendib and minus 179 mLs per year with placebo. Um, the drug was well tolerated, but a fairly high rate of, um, of diarrhea was, was seen. Um, it led to discontinuation in 17% on nintendib and uh, 10% on placebo. So, you know, certainly a difference. NEOA and what predicts NEOA? Obviously age, right? But this interesting study of over 10,000 patients showed that a, about 10% of them developed NEOA over a five-year period. These are elderly patients over 60. Um, things that were predictive in developing NEOA, diabetes, a 29% increased risk. Uh, poor glycemic control, a 41% increased risk. Maybe diabetes is a risk factor. Long-term diabetes, a 50% increased risk. These were all uh, independent of obesity and age. Point being that um, targeting blood glucose managing might be a way to avert NEOA in the future. I don't know if you treat dermatomyositis, but I do. I don't know if you treat juvenile dermatomyositis. I have. JDM is actually a harder to manage in my, my experience than is adult um, dermatomyositis. It certainly has a different pathology uh, and pathogenesis. A retrospective study of 45 JDM patients, two-thirds of them having severe JDM, looked at the utility of methotrexate, showing that it really wasn't very effective. Moreover, it was seemed to be less effective in patients who had myositis-associated uh, antibodies. In the best efficacy was seen in those that were MSA antibody negative. So again, these patients were given methotrexate plus steroids and inactive disease was only achieved in 31% of the patients. Inactive muscle disease, 42%, and inactive skin disease, 33%. Point being, we need other drugs other than methotrexate to manage JDM. I think we need other drugs other than methotrexate to manage adult DM and PM. That's just my opinion. Be great to see more research on this rather than retrospective studies, which I just showed you. Um, you know that uh, what can affect your prescribing maybe more than anything, money and risk and worry. Risk and worry comes from drug safety advisory from uh, advisories from regulatory authorities. Uh, and an interesting study looked at uh, drug safety advisories from four different countries, Canada, Denmark, US, and the UK between 2009 and 2015 and showed that your prescribing of the drug in question decreased almost 6%. Is that a lot? Well, if you're making the drug, it's a lot. Um, and it certainly does have an impact, I think, on some of our thinking. Um, the question is, 
you know, what else would affect your prescribing of these drugs in light of some safety concerns. Um, an odd study unrelated to this is the um, look at what happens when pharma makes payments to physicians and how that affects their prescribing. So this particular study looked at almost 5,000, 4,800 um, registered rheumatologists who use Medicare. Um, and they looked and found that 77%, I guess identifying you by your NPI numbers, received, received some sort of declared payment from the pharma industry. And they showed that for every $100 that they spent on you for food and beverage, your prescribing may have increased anywhere from 2 to 14% on the product involved. Similarly, if it was consulting and advising, for every $1,000 spent there, prescribing increased up to 15, up to 5%, excuse me, it's a smaller increase. So those of you who say, well, this doesn't really affect me, maybe that latter statistic suggested. Those of you who are having office lunches provided by industry, actually, I think are being more affected. Um, we need to continually evaluate our relationships with industry. So we did post a nice report this week about methotrexate and what, it ha what happens when you're given the COVID vaccine. I mean, maybe too late, you've already probably done most of this and either taken the advice of the ACR, which said that you should hold methotrexate based on the data from holding methotrexate with influenza, there is no data until now about holding methotrexate with the COVID vaccines. Or you will have listened to people like me who said, I'm not stopping methotrexate. What am I going to stop it? One week, two weeks? Um, and how many times? Doesn't make any sense to me. Um, this particular study looked at 139 stable RA patients who had a C dye less than 10. Um, many of them were on low-dose prednisone. Uh, and they were either randomized to not hold methotrexate or to hold methotrexate for two weeks. They were given a vaccine twice, um, one month apart, and for two weeks you had to hold the methotrexate. So over a six-week period, you will have been off the methotrexate for four weeks. Guess what? Um, those who held the methotrexate actually did have more seroconversions, meaning a better immunogenic response. 78% versus 55%. Yes, methotrexate does impair immunogenicity. Maybe you could fix that with boosting. The downside of this is that in those who held methotrexate after the first shot, 28%, 21% of them flared their RA. Like, and a flare was, I think, defined as a CDI increase of more than four. Um, at day, day 69, they had significantly more flares after both shots and two courses of holding were done in the methotrexate hold group than the other one. Me, I use this as a reason to not um, hold methotrexate. Um, you may look at this and say, this is a, definitely a reason to hold methotrexate because you want that immunogenic response. I'm going to get it by uh, being very aggressive in boosting shots, especially in my patients with ar 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 arthritis and we're taking methotrexate. Hydroxychloroquine, often discussed, often praised. It is the miracle drug in many disorders for all the things it does. Should you stop hydroxychloroquine in lupus patients who are doing great? That seemed like probably a good idea a number of years ago. I don't know why anyone would really want to do this now. Hydroxychloroquine safe. Um, its long-term benefits are many um, and great. The patient got into remission because of your treatment. Lupus doesn't go into remission. 
Why would you stop? Well, a st prospective study of 1,460 lupus patients who were in remission, and they looked at those who um, either reduced their, either had no change in hydroxychloroquine or reduced their dose of hydroxychloroquine or stopped hydroxychloroquine. Guess what? You know the story here. If you reduce the drug, you got a 20% increased risk of flaring. If you discontinue the drug, you have a 56% increased risk of flaring. Um, those who are at greatest risk of flaring their lupus with cessation or with lowering were those with low educational levels and those that started out on steroids and or immunosuppressives. That's a high proportion here. Don't stop hydroxychloroquine. It's the great drug. Um, it's a safe drug. Continue to use it. I, I like this study that looked at the incidence of spondyloarthritis in Crohn's patients. There's a, a spondyloarthritis registry that's out there. They purposely enrolled over 100 patients with early Crohn's disease and then did a full rheumatologic workup on them to see could they have spondylitis, even though that was not part of their, their deal. And not surprisingly, they found a fairly high rate of back pain in two-thirds, um, chronic back pain in half, arthralgias in on 44%. Patients had um, spondyloarthritis, axial spondyloarthritis, 19% of the time. MRI evidence of spondyloarthritis was seen in 15%. 80% of those patients actually met criteria for axial spa. Point being that even though it may be silent or have minimal symptoms, spondyloarthritis could be present in early spa patients. Who would those patients more likely be? B27 positive, they're more likely to have um, um, spondyloarthritis evidence. This is a ninefold increased risk. And those who had greater degrees of Crohn's disease bowel activity with a 14% increased risk. So, Point being, newly diagnosed Crohn's, I'd do a B27. I'd ask about back pain. Why not? We're going to end with um, new ACR guidelines for the treatment of systemic JIA. We put those on the website yesterday. Um, this is new ACR guidelines also on TMJ arthritis and the treatment of oligoarthritis. I find those boring today. I'm always excited about systemic JIA. Here are the recommendations. They say non-steroidals. There's still a belief out there that patients with systemic JIA may respond to non-steroidals. And in fact, there's evidence to say that it does happen. I don't know what that disease is because systemic JIA is like systemic adult JIA. It scares me um, with its severity and what it can do. But non-steroidals, um, some patients do respond and they can be conditionally recommended, but there's low evidence for that. In fact, for most of these recommendations, there's low evidence to support it. And this is mainly expert opinion. And one of my very first reviews I ever did of adult stills disease, I published that 60% of patients respond to non-steroidals, but that's very short-term outcomes. Um, they do recommend that um, uh, you should not use oral corticosteroids or synthetic DMARDs as your initial monotherapy in systemic JIA. Yeah, they may be called into question, and if you have to use steroids, as low a dose as possible and as bridge therapy until you can use more uh, other drugs. They say instead that your initial monotherapy, your single best punch at treating systemic JIA is going to be an IL-1 or an IL-6 inhibitor, and those are conditionally recommended, somewhat stronger evidence. If the patient has MAS, you definitely need to be using an IL-1 and an IL-6 inhibitor, and they prefer that over a calcineurin inhibitor to get better control of macrophage activation syndrome. 
patients with MAS will need corticosteroids initially that can be tapered. Biologics should be used in these patients when either steroids don't work or there's an incomplete response to IL-6 or IL-1. Biologics can be used mainly to treat the arthritis um, and sometimes to manage. But again, um, um, biologic DMARDs and conventional DMARDs are, can, in this situation, be used for mainly arthritis or when the IL-1 and IL-6 inhibitors don't work. That's it for the podcast. Go to roomnow.live to register. We'll see you in Dallas in a few weeks. It's going to be a great meeting. Take care.